she was just so young. She was 17 and she was killed for who she was. And so it really strikes a chord on a personal level for me as to why I think this case is so important. And like we talked about, really examining and highlighting these acts of violence against people just because they're transgender or LGBTQ+. Hello, Locked Inside listeners. This is Erica Stapleton. As you already know, we've reached the end of our first season. We do have some updates in the works that we'll be sharing on this feed. But in the meantime, you might need something else to listen to, which is why I'm joined today by one of my colleagues from a sister news station, KGW in Portland, Oregon, Ashley Korsland, an anchor, reporter, and host of the brand new podcast, Should Be Alive. Ashley, thanks for joining me. Yeah, Erica, glad to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. So you've been working on a new podcast series with KGW and Vault Studios called Should Be Alive about the murder of a teenager named Nikki Kuhnhausen. It sounds like you've spent a lot of time tracking down family members and talking to other people who knew her for this podcast. What can you tell us about Nikki? Yeah, so Nikki was um, a local 17-year-old girl. She was still in high school. Um, Nikki was described to us by family and friends as kind of the life of the party. She was always very um, friendly to everybody, inclusive. She was magnetic, so she just drew people in who wanted to be around her. And, you know, she was a typical 17-year-old. She loved making videos on TikTok. She was really active on social media. And her dream in life was to become a makeup artist to the stars. Um, she wanted to be Nicki Minaj's personal makeup artist. And so those were some of her dreams and aspirations. But Nikki also had challenges in her life. She was transgender and she transitioned at a pretty early age, according to her mom. She was really in elementary going into middle school when she started accepting who she really was and wanted to be. And because of that, she was bullied by other peers and other kids her age. Um, she faced a lot of ridicule because of the fact that she was transgender, which was really um, unfortunate. You know, when you think about your life as a 17-year-old, then having to add that on top of all the regular stresses in your life. And she also had a tough upbringing in a sense. She um, bounced in and out of foster care in some of her early years, according to her brother, the, the her and her siblings, they were in and out of different homes and then eventually went back to living with their parents. And um, as Nikki got older, she lived a bit of a transient lifestyle where she was couch surfing with friends. But what was what really stuck out is how close she was with her mom and her family, especially her mom, though. They talked every day. And her mom, Lisa, described Nikki as just having a huge heart. And, and she really would just give anything to anybody who was in need. And she just really had a heart of gold. And so that's kind of what we learned about Nikki as a person. As reporters, we cover a lot of different stories. And most of the time, we don't get to spend a ton of time digging into everything. What about Nikki's story made you say, we should do more with this? And why take the time to dig further into what happened to her? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I think part of it was the fact that Nikki was so young, um, just 17 years old. She hadn't even graduated high school. And as I said, she dealt with challenges in her life that other people her age might not have had to have gone through. And so um, that was important to really show people and let people hear about the life Nikki lived and not just about her death. It was really about who she was um, in her young life. And also because her case, I personally felt, didn't get as much media attention as it perhaps should have, especially in those early weeks after Nikki initially disappeared. Um, I think in the community, there was a sense of, well, Nikki was transgender and therefore that must have meant 
she was troubled and ran away. That was sort of the the gist of some of the sub-conversations people would have on social media, you know, people in the community commenting on our news stories about it. And that was just, I think, really um, defeating to Nikki's family and especially to transgender activists in the community that people would think she was just so... Um, broken in a sense that she would just run away, which was not at all what had happened. And so I, I just personally felt Nikki's story deserved more justice. And then, of course, once you start learning about what happened to her and the murder, and it, it, there was just so much to investigate. So from a podcast perspective, a lot of things people didn't hear in the news that we felt we could really dive into and give the public a full picture of what had happened. It would later be learned that Nikki's gender identity played a role in her disappearance. But even before that was known, when Nikki went missing back in June of 2019, there were already some troubling trends when it came to acts of violence against transgender individuals. What did you uncover with your reporting? Yeah, so we went to the Human Rights Campaign, which is an advocacy group for a lot of this information. And they track the data um, specifically when it comes to acts of violence against transgender people. And what we found was it really is disheartening and it's really disturbing that there has been an increase in acts of violence and specifically fatal violence, deadly violence against trans people over the past few years. And the HRC tracks back to 2013, I believe, but, um, over the last couple of years, the organization has tracked just in this year so far, 14 murders of transgender Americans, um, that's already just in 2022. Last year, there were 57. The year before, I believe it was 54. Um, and so each year, it seems like the numbers keep growing. And part of what we talk to um, the human rights campaign about is, well, are the acts of violence increasing or is it that this is becoming more of a topic where people are aware of? So therefore, it's being reported more openly and you're learning more about these crimes. Um, and the, the people we talked to said, you know, it's a little bit of both, but they do believe at the end of the day that there just seems to be more, um, more acts of violence. And so that's something we felt really passionate about, um, wanting to, wanting the public to hear about that. It's tough to talk about. It's tough to, to listen to, but it is important. And it's something we all need to face as a community. Something else you get into over the course of this series is that Nikki's case actually led to the creation of new legislation in Washington state. What is the Nikki Kuhnhausen Act? Yeah, so the Nikki Kuhnhausen Act was House Bill 1678 in Washington. And essentially what it does is it removes or eliminates a defendant's ability to use the the so-called gay or trans panic defense. Um, and so the LGBTQ plus panic defense Ultimately, what it is, it's not um, a formal defense where, like self-defense, for example, that you would um, enter your defense as such, but it's a legal strategy. And so what what it does, the panic defense is, in a way, it blames a, let's say, a victim's gender identity or sexuality if they're gay, for example. The defendant would therefore blame that revelation on discovering someone was transgender or gay. And they would say, well, I was temporarily incapacitated. I, for lack of a better term, I freaked out and I cannot be held liable or responsible for my actions. And so that has, that defense has been used over the years in murder trials and to where a defendant would ultimately blame the victim, the LGBTQ plus victim for 
there for the crime. So whether it was an act of violence or a murder, that has been used in court. And so Nikki's law removes the ability for a defendant to use that strategy in the state of Washington going forward. The first episode of Should Be Alive is available now, and you open this series talking about an interrogation that takes place four months after Nikki Kuhnhausen disappeared. And we hear the actual audio from that interrogation, and I know it's not always easy to get a hold of public records, so what did it take to track that down? Yeah, we put in dozens of public disclosure requests through either the court system and the local police department. And sometimes you get the records, if you're lucky, in a couple weeks. Other times it can take months and months, depending on the breadth of what you're requesting and how many pages you need. And so for this case, we got at least a thousand, if not more, pages of documents. And that was just from the court system. And then on the police department side of things, on the investigative side, lots and lots of documents. A lot of them were search warrants. And then the audio interviews. There were hours and hours of audio interviews with the suspect or other people that police investigated. And so there was just, from a a process standpoint, there was a mountain of pieces of evidence and documents to go through. And that's really what a lot of the legwork on something this um, involved really is about. And that it takes a long time. And, you know, like you, I've been a reporter for a number of years now, but Locked Inside, was the first time I put a podcast together. But by this point, you're a podcast veteran. You've now done, this will be your third, you've done Urge to Kill and The Yellow Car, which were both so well done and put together. How did the experience of working on this series and covering Nikki's story compare to your past projects? So I think this one was similar to Urge to Kill in the sense that This was a case that went through the court system, went to trial, um, it was adjudicated. And so in that sense, it made it easier to access a lot of the the court documents and audio interviews and police interviews and things like that, the, the actual materials, because from an investigative and legal perspective, the case essentially was closed. With the yellow car, we followed a a woman's journey of re-examining her mother's 30-year-old murder um, and the subsequent conviction. And she was uncovering new evidence throughout the pandemic, in fact, trying to kind of overturn the, the original conviction and say, hey, there are other people out there I think killed my mom. And so with that case, it was different because we didn't have access to a lot of, you know, it was a 30-year-old case, and so there weren't a lot of materials and audio files from trial. And so this one really allowed, the um, Should Be Alive allowed us to use all those audio files and interviews, and we got all these documents. And so it helped us tell the story in a different way than the yellow car, for example. And then with Nikki's story, what was different about this is just, I guess for me, Um, Again, I go back to the fact that she was just so young. She was 17 and she was killed for who she was. And so it really strikes a chord on a personal level for me as to why I think this case is so important. And like we talked about, really examining and highlighting these acts of violence against people just because they're transgender or LGBTQ plus. And so um, I I hope people listen and and have an open mind and open heart about these things. And and really, I hope it encourages dialogue because at the end of the day, that's what we need. We need to talk about this and address it and get better as, as a society. Once again, the show is called Should Be Alive. The first episode is available now, and you can find it by searching Should Be Alive wherever you've been listening to Locked Inside. Ashley, thanks so much for chatting with me about it. I'm looking forward to listening. Thank you so much, Erica. 